Hi, everybody. I'm going to take out my sunglasses so I look like I'm looking at you. All right, so we are going to be in Galatians 2. And if you weren't here last week, Ryan started off our series of Galatians. We're going through the entire book. And he covered an introduction and Galatians 1. If you haven't heard it, I encourage you to, to listen to his message. One of the things that he did such an incredible job of, and it's really important when we teach the scriptures, is to set the right hermeneutic, which a hermeneutic is just how you approach the scriptures. And here at Living Waters, we go with a historical contextual hermeneutic, which basically means we need to understand what the, word, what the words of scripture were saying to the audience it was intended to, because scripture has one meaning and a m multiple applications. It can only mean what it meant to the audience that it was written to and who it was spoken originally to. And yet that word is still living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and it still is powerful and applicable and relevant to us today. It's just the application of the meaning that we find today. So Ryan did such a good job of setting some of the historical context, and what we're going to do today is we're going to start at verse 1 of chapter 2, and we're going to start reading through it, and we're going to stop a few times to give some explanation to what's going on. Again, chapter 2 is still talking about the setup as Paul is addressing the Galatians and setting his authority to say what he's about to say, the, the powerful truths of God that he's about to apply. So let's go to Galatians 2, and we'll start there at verse 1. So Galatians 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders. I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. So just a real quick context there. Peter and the other disciples that were basically headquartered basically in Jerusalem and the movement and the building of the church, their call was to the Jews. And they were evangelizing the Jewish, Jewish nation. But Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, which culturally would be very, a, a very, not a hugely different, but a different audience. And so Paul is now going up to meet with the leaders in the Jerusalem church to make sure that as he's preaching to them, to the Gentiles, that his message is not in vain. They're, they're basically comparing notes and comparing revelation and making sure they're on the same page. So, verse 3, yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Now, Ryan talked about this last week when he was talking about how when uh, the, the gospel was going forth, it was going forth to this people group, the Jews that had had all these very strict religious observances in their history as a Jewish people. One being circumcision, which you just you know, heard there as Titus was not compelled to be circumcised. I don't know anyone in this world that's compelled to be circumcised. Anyway, it's a little joke. Circumcision joke, yay, because <laughs> Drew's preaching. Um, I wish we could edit the live stream and take that whole thing out, but we can't. So this was 
basically there was in the law that was presented by Moses, there were so many rules and regulations, so many outward signs to show your allegiance to God and your faithfulness to him. But when Jesus came, the, the reality was that when Jesus came, it exposed the reality that the law was never going to actually save anybody. The law just proved to show how incapable we were of doing enough for our own salvation. Like you could not be good enough to save yourself. And one of these things that, that was in the law was circumcision for the men. As an outward sign of their allegiance to God, this was one of the outward signs. And so when, when the gospel was going forth and the gospel carries with it this amazing reality that Jesus did everything for us for our salvation. There is not a thing that we can do to add to what Jesus did to save us. It is by his grace we are saved through faith, not of any works or things that we can do ourselves. Jesus saves us. Amen? And yet, coming out of this culture where there were so many things to prove your allegiance to God and to prove your religious fervor, there was this, this tension of trying to figure out how to exist in the freedom that Jesus offered in the accomplished work versus the old culture of trying to do all these things to prove that you were faithful, to prove that you were worthy of God's love. And as you might imagine, that doesn't always go well when freedom is offered. Freedom sounds really good, but it can be really shaking to people when what we're relying on is ourselves or external things to prove that we're okay. But freedom can be really, really hard to handle. So you have this moment where Paul has gone up and he has experienced these false believers that have infiltrated their ranks, that have been offended at the freedom that the believers have, and are trying to push them back into religious acts to show their faithfulness, which is completely unnecessary and destroys often our relationship with God. And I'll get into that a little bit later. Now, in this moment where he's talking about this, again, it's really important to really know and understand. If you want to see a bit more about what's going on in this interaction, you can go to Acts 15, and you can see this whole interaction that happens between the apostles and Paul when they're talking about this very issue. And so in Acts 15, you see this in verse 1 and 2. It says, and th these are some of the quotes from that. Unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. That's what the, the, the false believers were saying. Unless you do this, unless you follow the law, unless you get circumcised, unless you do these things, you can't be saved, which is so against the gospel. It's like, say, if I were to say to you today, since none of us really have this expectation of circumcision as like well, how you are a believer, but if I were to say to you, unless you do your daily devotionals at 6 a.m. for 30 minutes and read one psalm, one proverb, one gospel, and one Old Testament passage, you are going to hell. I don't know if anyone has ever felt like that before, but I know I grew up in a very religious environment where there were all these add-ons to what you had to do to actually be proving you were in relationship with Jesus. But Paul was addressing this very thing because it's stealing the power of the gospel. It's stealing away the reality in Jesus that he has done it all, that he has accomplished this for us. 
So they are in this debate with them. And now in Acts 15, verse 10, it says, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. And so Paul, again, in Acts 15, you can see a much more robust telling of this, of this moment where Paul is rebuking this belief system of like, how dare you try to put a yoke of slavery onto Gentiles when our own people who had this law couldn't even do it. This is not the gospel. This is not the gospel. This is religiosity. This is legalism. This is a, a, a distortion of what it means to follow Jesus. And Paul was coming in direct opposition to that, fighting it because he wanted to preserve the purity of the gospel as he's giving it out to the Gentiles and eventually to the world. So you can see that in this, this book of Galatians, you're, you're having at the center of it, as we've dubbed it, grace over effort, this, this basically thesis statement that says, the gospel tells us Jesus accomplished our salvation for us, not us. We haven't done a thing. No matter how good or bad you were before Jesus, that did not matter. Jesus did the work of salvation in your life. I got to come on from April back there. Thank you, April. So let's go on to verse 6. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They are adding nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. And again, we're seeing that the two different sides of calling, Peter and those apostles to the Jews and Paul and his followers to the Gentiles. And Again, he's saying, I don't care how fancy, how, how important these people are. On the contrary, like, God doesn't show favoritism. They've been adding nothing to my message. He's saying, it doesn't matter if you've esteemed them. This message is true. This message is the gospel. It says, for God was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me to the apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, which is also Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. So this is okay so far. He's saying we've agreed. We agree on the gospel. We agree on these things. It doesn't make any difference where we came from. We know this is our calling to the Gentiles, them to the Jews. We're good. We're all in fellowship. They recognize my calling. Everything's great. And then we get to verse 11. When Cephas came to, to Antioch, this is again Peter, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Basically, he was guilty. For before certain men came from, from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Now, again, this is saying that Peter was hanging out with the, the, the eating with the Gentile converts, showing the gospel by recognizing that in Christ we're one, Associating with these people who are uncircumcised, who were not religious, 
They were not observing the religious rules of the, of the law. And Peter had no problem interacting with them until important people showed up whose opinion mattered to Peter. And then he drew himself away and only hung out with the Jews that had been circumcised. Thank you, April. Uh-oh. That ticked off Paul. And rightly so, because again, it is betraying the gospel of Jesus. The very thing that these men were called to proclaim and to teach and lead, Peter began to offend the gospel by only associating with those who, were, who had observed the circumcision. And Paul calls him out on that. And again, you know, if you listen to last week's sermon, um, Ryan has some things to say about that as well. You should listen to it. It was really good. <laughs> and then what happens, what happens when a leader does something, when someone that you esteem does something, when someone that you're following does something, you see that as an example and you begin to do the same thing. So the Jews that had been converts to Jesus, saw Peter do this and started doing the same thing, separating themselves out from the Gentile converts and making this separation. And of course, this starts creating an environment that Jesus came to abolish. You see, before Jesus came and the gospel was given to the entire world, we know historically that the Jews and the Gentiles had despised for each other. There was this class system. There was like, oh, you're a Gentile. It was like an insult. It was this, this separation, almost this racism that was happening. And the gospel confronted that and it, and it restored relationship and it brought dignity to the Gentiles and it brought them into the family of God, which was so important and right that the gospel was doing that. But now in this moment, where Peter had in one moment been embracing that, recognizing the grace of the, of the gospel of Jesus. Now when the important folks showed up, he starts going back on that and creating again this separate, this separate reality that the Gentiles were now second-class citizens in the kingdom. Again, and Jesus died so that wouldn't be the reality. Can you imagine... Can you imagine what that might feel like in our family if we decided that people that came from one background were more important than people who came from another? Can you imagine if like, oh, you have a past. You get to be over there and only associate with those people in our church. And the rest of us who've been good and holy get to be over here. How would that feel? I mean, if I divided this parking lot and said, anyone who's ever had any sort of, this will be fun, anyone who's ever had any sorts of sexual sin or anything in their life, you need to go over to that side of the, of the parking lot. And only people who've been pure and chaste their whole lives get to be over here. I, in our culture, I think that this would be sparse and this would be big, but, but can you imagine being singled out and separated out and told that you're not fit to be embraced by the whole family of God. Can you imagine how painful, how distorting that would be to the gospel of Jesus? Well, that was happening. It was happening because Peter saw this moment. He was afraid of what these renowned men might think of him. And he stopped doing the very thing that the gospel compelled him to do in the first place. And people followed him. And Paul was going to have none of that. 
Verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, Peter, in front of all of them, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He's calling out his hypocrisy because Peter knew full well the freedom that he had in Jesus. He knew full well the freedom that he had to not observe the law of Moses, to, to just know that his salvation was accomplished by Jesus completely. He had tossed out so many of those other things, living in the freedom of, of Christ, and then in this moment began to draw back from it. And so he's calling out his hypocrisy, like, how dare you do this? You live in the freedom that Christ afforded you, and now because you're afraid of the opinion of these men, you're going to present to these people, these Gentiles, that unless they do what you're no longer doing, they're not good enough and they're not saved. So he calls them out in front of everybody. Verse 15, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. By the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now again, a historical, a historical contextual con uh, cultural context, we understand that this is talking to the Jewish people and to the Gentile converts, that they are addressing the law of Moses, they're addressing the sacrificial system, they're addressing the, the, the ceremonial cleanliness rules are Addressing all this stuff that we don't deal with today. We don't. But we have, in our culture, come up with plenty of other rules in Christianity that we need to follow in order to be acceptable, or at least we had over the last several decades. Anyone know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I don't know why you're clapping for it. It's not good. But you know what I'm talking about, April. Anyone else know what I'm talking about? So the meaning of this passage, we understand it was spoken to these people about the Jewish customs, but the application for us today is rather broad. The application comes with the question, what are you trying to do to earn God's favor, to earn his love, and to earn his salvation? Maybe not even consciously, but what do you hold in your own heart as things that if you don't do this, suddenly God might not be as pleased with you? Because we all have them. We all have things that we have either passively or actively begin to agree with because of the culture and the upbringing or the words that have been spoken to us wrongly that we start coming up with these things that we have to jump through these hoops in order to be right with God. And I want to tell you right now to allow the Lord to confront those things in your life and expose them because it is through faith in the finished work of Jesus that we are saved. Not by anything that we do. And nothing we have done disqualifies us from the grace given as well. You're going to hear that over and over and over and over again. Verse 17 says this. But have we agreed on that first part first? Like the, the, the work, the finished work of Jesus has saved us. 
alone. Yes? Amen? I want a little bit more agreement on that. Amen? Thank you. 17 says this, but if in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Now, for some of us, that verse might be a little confusing. It might, it might be a little hard to know what it's saying there, but I'll put it like this. When freedom is offered, it's kind of a dangerous thing. You see, freedom, freedom can be really scary for those who are offering it. When it comes to salvation, when it comes to discipleship, when it comes to pastoring and discipling people, I'll, t I'll be really honest with you, freedom scares me sometimes. It is so easy to go back to rules. It's so easy to go back to rules and regulations and requirements because freedom gives people the option to choose life or to choose death. It gives people the option to follow Jesus with all their hearts or to not. Freedom gives people freedom, and freedom is scary. We don't always handle our freedom well. And I think that that, as Paul is saying this, he's addressing an implicit concern that not every person that was trying to push people back into religion were doing it because they wanted to control and they wanted to manipulate and they wanted to shame. Some of them were just scared of freedom. Some of them were terrified of what people might do with freedom. And so it felt easier to push them back into rules for external things to say, good, you're towing the line. Good, you're actually making progress. Good, you're doing this, you're doing that. You must be doing well. You're saved because you're doing these things. It's easier to go back to captivity sometimes than it is to exist in freedom. And this fear, and sometimes this deception that fills in, because it's not just fear from those who want rules and regulations, sometimes it's our own self-deception in freedom. They go, hey, Christ accomplished it all. I don't have to do anything for my own salvation. So I can just continue in my life the way I am because Jesus paid it all. It's like, if I want to apply Jesus paid it all to my student loans, I don't think that would work. Jesus did not pay for those. Likewise, in this, it's like, when, you're, when you are there and you say, well, Jesus accomplished this for salvation for me, so now I don't have to do a thing. It's like, well, that's saying this. If we seek to be justified in Christ through faith, saying he accomplished it all, but we as, and I'll put this in for our culture now rather than Jews, if we Christians find ourselves behaving and living like those who do not know the gospel, that's what this is saying. If we Jews find ourselves among the sinners, if we Christians who claim the name of Jesus, who claim faith in Christ, who have received the gift of salvation that Christ has accomplished for us, and yet find ourselves living exactly like those who have no knowledge of the gospel of Jesus, no, no, not partaken in the salvation that he has given us, not experienced the grace of God, but if we continue to harbor sin and continue to act destructively and rebelliously and unchanged in our life, as it says here, does that mean that Christ is good with it or promotes it? Absolutely not. Verse 18, if I rebuild what I destroyed, 
than I really would be a lawbreaker. You know, when we're justified by faith alone, that means that we believe that Jesus, with his obedience unto death on the cross, with who he was defeating sin, defeating death, and offering to us the free gift of salvation to be in right relationship with God, that he made a way for that. If we believe all of that, the gospel, but we continue to practice the very things that Christ died to set us free from, we have a problem. We have a major problem. Christ did not die so that we could continue to be enslaved to sin. Christ did not die so that we could continue to live lives that look no different than what they were before we came to know Jesus. Christ did not die to keep us in patterns and in behaviors and in strongholds that drowned out his Holy Spirit's voice in our lives. Christ did not die to leave us prisoner and broken and destroying ourselves through sin. Christ did not die for that and he does not promote that. Because literally when we accept the grace of God, we are destroying the law of sin and death in our life. We are breaking the chains that held us bound into behaviors, into patterns, into thoughts, into things that pull us away from the gospel. Those things have been broken. The cage has been opened. The prison has been destroyed. We get to leave it and go and live in freedom and health and life more abundant. But when we go in and we rebuild the prison or relink the chains, or shackle ourselves back to the very things that Christ died to separate us and free us from. That is what this verse is saying. If I rebuild what I destroyed through faith in Jesus, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Basically saying, I am living in direct opposition to the freedom Christ died to give me. Romans 5, starting at verse 18, says this, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, that's the sin of Adam, that's the, the sin in the garden, just as that one act of Adam and Eve condemned all of humanity, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people, Christ submitting to death on the cross, being the ultimate sacrifice for sin, ending the law, ending the curse of the law, ending the curse of sin, ending the curse of death. One act got us there. One act got us out of it. Make sense so far? For just as through the disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? We are those who died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? 
Christ died to separate us from this. How can we live in it any longer? If I seek to be justified and yet I rebuild what I tore down, I am a lawbreaker. Meaning, again, if we accept the gift of, of Christ, this freedom that gospel affords us, and we continue to live and build the things that Christ died to set us free from, we are in the wrong we are in the wrong. For if we have been united with him in death, in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. And that takes us, if we go back to Galatians, Galatians 19, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if, I, if, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. We've been crucified with Christ. Our old flesh, our old ways, they're dead. They no longer live. But the life we live, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Christ affords for us freedom. Freedom from the law, yes, but freedom from everything that the law said was true, meaning that sin and death have dominion over us. He freed us from that. He freed us from that reality. Now, we may know this logically. We may know this intellectually. We might have studied theology till we're blue in the face. But unless we apprehend it in our hearts, we're not going to live like it. A little personal application on this. Many of you know my story. I won't go into my whole story because you're probably tired of hearing my story. But I will tell you this about my life. I accepted Jesus when I was like four or five years old. And I have followed him ever since then. All of the dysfunction, all the brokenness in my life that I constantly tell everyone around the country, it all happened as a follower of Jesus. But the reason why I believe it happened and the reason why it all changed one day was the difference between trying to earn salvation in favor from God versus accepting it. You see, my life in all the brokenness and all the sin and all the patterns of my life that I was a slave to, it wasn't because I didn't believe in Jesus. It wasn't because I didn't believe that there was grace for me. It wasn't because I didn't believe Jesus paid at all. It's because I also believed that I had to add something to that in order to be right with God. I lived in this horrible oppression of performance before God. And yeah, I tried to conquer sin in my life through my own effort. Because 
In that effort, I still believed it was my job to remove that stain from me. Somehow, even though I could quote the scriptures, I couldn't believe them for my own life. And so I fought to be a good Christian. I fought to be pleasing before the Lord. And anyone who has lived in that reality knows it does not work. You feel the oppression of expectation and performance over your life. And every time you make a mistake, the condemnation hits you fresh, new, and more powerful. You feel more defeated. You feel more frustrated. And then you start doubting whether or not the grace of God is a real thing. Because you're not actually living in the grace of God. You're living in your own effort. This got me more enslaved to sin, not free from it. And I would read passages like this and I would feel condemned and I would feel hopeless and I'd feel like the grace of God didn't actually work because I believe Jesus paid it all. I believed in the gospel, but why was I still miserable and, and oppressed and addicted and prisoner to these sinful patterns? It was living under religious obligation and expectation that I couldn't even name that drove me to the deepest, darkest places of enslavement and sin in my life. And it was the day that grace was made clear to me that it all changed. It was the day that I began to understand that he justified me, not me. That his blood washed me clean, not my consistency with my daily devotionals. Not whether or not I could quote scripture to you, line and verse. Not whether or not I dressed right for church or attended all the times that church was open, which I did. It was his grace. His grace freed me. Now let's get back to that little problem of freedom. Because when you experience that and you realize Jesus did it all, now there's this opportunity, like I said before, that freedom floods in and you go, okay, well, what does this freedom mean? What does it mean that Jesus did it all, that I don't have to work so hard? The temptation can be, well, just stop working. Just stop trying to do anything. But when you truly experience the gospel of Jesus and you understand that grace that he's given you, at least for me, when I experienced that, something shifted in me. And it wasn't that we don't partner with this Holy Spirit. Because when we say these, even these things of grace over effort, grace does not mean the absence of movement or work. Do we understand that? Grace means you're empowered to live the life that Christ is calling you to in his strength, not ours. But it gets it can be so tempting to be like, well, he did it all. I'm just going to stay right here because he did it all. But for me, when I experienced the goodness of God and the grace and the mercy of God, when I experienced his blood washing me clean and feeling clean for the first time in my life, when I experienced his mercy, my life changed Suddenly, it wasn't the effort to try to do good. It was the grace to live in the goodness of God. You know, there's this, there's this thing I say when I, when I counsel people and when I go speak, 
It's just this little thing that I, I learned a while back. It's pursuit is stronger than resistance. And when, I'm, when I experience the grace and mercy of God so powerfully, suddenly my life shifted from trying to resist sinning and doing wrong to pursuing the love of God. And pursuit is always way stronger than resistance. So many times I think we get in our, in our walk with the Lord and somewhere along the lines we start slipping over this line where it stops becoming about pursuing him and being in relationship with him and experiencing his presence and his love and his mercy and his friendship. And somehow maybe it's just life gets hard or we get distracted. We start slipping over this line of just resisting not being bad. Trying to resist the bad reactions or the sins that are tempting or the whatever it is. And we start resisting rather than pursuing but you see, when we live in the grace of God and, and his grace empowers us, it empowers us to relationship with him. It empowers us to pursue him with our whole hearts. And when we're doing that, our hearts have no room for the bull crap over here that maybe entangled us before. I almost said a different word, but we're on live stream. I feel strongly about this. How many of you have experienced what I'm talking about right now? That the, the love and the pursuit of a relational God, our, our focus shifts. I'm going to tell you one more thing. My wife will not be happy I shared this story with you. But she's not here, so. Four years back, we had an opportunity to go to Hawaii, which was amazing. If you've ever been, go again, go often, never come back. It's amazing. We did not want to come back. But on this trip, we decided we were going to be adventurous. And if you know us, we're not that adventurous. I mean, look at me. I'm not sporty or anything. But we decided we want to break out of our shell and do something. So we signed up for this river kayak tour. We'd never been in a kayak before. We probably shouldn't have been then. But we got in this two-person kayak and, and got on this river, and we're going to go up this river to another river, and then we're going to go to a waterfall. And it did not go well for us. It really, really did not, because we had no idea what we were doing. And we kept hitting the shore or logs or rocks or whatever. It's like we had this tractor beam to any obstacle, and we looked like idiots on this thing, and you know, it was really embarrassing because people were way up there, and we're hitting rocks for some reason. I can't understand why. So we get through this frustrating experience, still married, praise God. It was iffy there for a minute. We got back to our friends that we had gone to Hawaii with who are very sporty people, who have been all over the world doing all these things, and that's why we probably did it, was we didn't want to look lame in front of them. And we were talking with the wife, and she was, we were talking about how we kept hitting obstacles. And she goes, well, where were you looking? I said, well, at the rocks and at the logs because we wanted to avoid them. She goes, why were you looking at them? I said, because we were going to hit them. She goes, no, no, no. Where you look is where you go. Your attention takes you to where you're going. You want to not hit the rocks? Look where you want to go. Where are you pursuing See, we just didn't want to hit the rocks. We were trying to resist it, but we were focused completely on it. And we ended up hitting it every time. When we turn our attention, and we turn, and we've been kayaking since, and it's gone really well. No rocks, no logs, no divorce. It's been awesome. 
Because we put our eyes where we want to go because pursuit becomes more powerful than resistance. Can I ask you, where are your eyes focused? Is it on your own effort or is it on the love and the mercy and the grace of our wonderful Savior? Are your eyes focused on things that you're trying to go to to get your needs met or are they focused on Jesus? Because you're going to end up where your attention is. You're going to hit and be shipwrecked or you're going to arrive at where the focus of our heart and the focus of our attention is. And Jesus did not die for us to be shipwrecked on the rocks. He didn't die for us to hit a log. He didn't die for us to remain burdened and entrapped in sin. He died so that we could be made right with him and be in relationship with him and experience eternal life and life more abundant. Where are you focused? Several years back, Ryan joked that I wanted to preach this message because I have Galatians 2.20 tattooed on my leg, and he joked that people have fallen down in the grocery store and been saved because of my t that did not ever happen. But I will tell you something that this tattoo has done for me in my walk with the Lord. Because there were moments in my life after getting this tattoo where I got frustrated and my attention got put on my own effort. And I got really tempted into other things. I got tempted to do things that would have probably destroyed my life or altered the course of my life. Severely tempted. And any time I got there, I remember looking down at my leg and being reminded, the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I have been crucified with him. This old nature, this, this law of sin and death, it is dead. If I will live in the life that he died for me to live in, I can be free. And even though people in the grocery store don't fall down and get saved because of my tattoo, I swear to you, this thing saved my bacon more than once. It reminded me of the grace and the mercy of God. It reminded me of what he has done for me. It, it, it reminded me to put my eyes back on the grace and mercy and love of our Father who died so that we would be free. Can I encourage you this week? to get Galatians 2.20 tattooed on your... No, just kidding. Can I encourage you this week to purpose to set your eyes on Jesus? To purpose to pursue the relationship that is made available through the gospel. If you struggle with habitual sin, if you struggle with addiction, if you struggle with, with patterns, if you're in the middle of a life right now that doesn't resemble Jesus, can I encourage you just for this week, stop trying to resist all that and turn your eyes to Jesus. Turn your eyes to him and walk towards him. You see, this doesn't have to be as hard as maybe it's felt or been because pursuit is stronger than resistance. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, you have done so much for us. You have accomplished salvation for us. You've done everything that needs to be done for us to be in right relationship with you and with the Father.
And we know from your word that there's temptation in that freedom. There's temptation to just sit back and not be changed by that. There's temptation to forget that reality and to live still in the cages that you set us free from. So Father, I just pray that this week that each of us would allow your spirit to confront our hearts in these places where maybe we haven't really focused or apprehended the grace and the love of the Father yet. So Lord, I just, I ask this, not through any effort on our part, not through any, necessarily even any structure on our part, but will you just draw our eyes to you? Will you draw our eyes, the eyes of our heart, the eyes of our body, like all our eyes, Lord, will you draw them to you this week? Will we look upon you and we see the goodness and the grace and the mercy and the glory of who you are. Draw our eyes to you this week, Father. And in light of that, may we let go of some of the things that's, that have drawn our attention. Can we let go of the things that have obscured the vision of you? Can we pursue you this week, Father? Not out of our own effort, but in response to the glorious grace of Jesus. Bless us, Father. Draw us to you. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you guys.